Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I don't know where you're listening from, but we are honored and thrilled that you have taken time out of your busy schedule in order to join us here on That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy to answer your questions. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. Again, this program is not just about you listening, but also you interacting with us, sending in a question, sending in a topic, calling in with your concern. Again, we are thankful that you are listening to the program tonight. And we're going to start out with a few questions that we didn't get a chance to discuss last week or didn't get a chance for Pastor to answer them in as much depth as he wanted to. Pastor, the first question we're going to pick up with, coming from last week, is how do I as a Christian interact with unsaved friends without always preaching to them about their lifestyle and as such turning them off? Well, I would think the mistake that is basically made there is the idea that you would always be preaching to to people. Um... Primarily, when you're dealing with unsaved people, they're not so much interested in your preaching as your living. So I think the important thing when you're dealing with unsaved people is to be authentic, to be real, to be a genuine Christian. Uh, leave the preaching to the pastor and try to live out the life before them. Um, the other thing I would say is that the way to impact the unsaved person is by being different from them. Uh, that's how you awaken their conscience and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in their lives. Uh, remember that Bible says that we're supposed to be salt and we're supposed to be light. To my mind, it's impossible to be salt and light without uh, having some um, impact upon the lives of those people. Salt, of course, is going to cause some discomfort and uh, would normally sting, and light is there to expose and to make things transparent. So it's impossible to be salt and light uh, and not offend people who are unsaved and who are ungodly and who have a darkened understanding. So I think that your presence should be a restraining uh, presence and it should be a sanitizing. And uh, I think that would be the key factor uh, as far as that is concerned. I would say this, there are things that we had to avoid as Christians, even though we have friends. For example, the Bible says that we must shun the very appearance of evil. Mm. I think there are places that we should not find ourselves. I think there are also things that we should not be engaged in, and certainly there are certain practices that we want to not want to get involved in. Uh, people who are not Christians, the, they have the greatest contempt and disdain for people who flow with the tide uh, 
and uh, pretend uh, to go along with the group and do things that the group are doing that they know to be wrong. They have utter contempt for people like that because they know that the Christian they should not be engaged in those kind of activities. So sometimes we may think that by doing the things they're doing and acting the way they act and behaving the way they behave that we're ingratiating ourselves into their favor. But in actual fact, we're doing the very opposite. They know what a Christian is supposed to be. They know what to expect from a Christian. So when a Christian pretends not to be a Christian and acts out as an unsaved person, it's just disdain and contempt for those people. So I'm just saying to you, the fundamental thing you need to do is to be real and authentic, live the life, and uh, I wouldn't concentrate so much on the preaching, just living out that life before those people. And I think that would be the best way to, to try to win them to the Lord. Pastor, is it possible for me as a Christian to actually damage the name or reputation of Christ? Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, um, think of a Christian smoking marijuana with other people who are not Christians, or think of uh, a, a young Christian engaging in secular activity with people uh, within the school system. Uh, there's a lot of that going on within the school system, especially with teenagers. Imagine a person saying that they are Christian and engaging in that kind of activity, or even watching pornography with their friends. Uh, clearly, uh, that brings a, the name of Christ into uh, disreputation, and I would suggest to any person who thinks that that's not the case, I don't think that they're looking at life realistically. Um, so you actually damage your testimony, witness. And by the way, you spend a whole lifetime building up a witness and a testimony. You can put it within a day. And then to try to regain it is one of the most difficult things uh, for a Christian. We just need to be authentic and real. And uh, I think that's what people are looking for. Uh, they may not like our stand. They may not like our standards. But if they know that we're real and authentic and genuine, uh, they have a, re a respect. It might be a silent respect, and they might say things that would uh, lead us to feel discomfortable, but the actual fact is that they really respect if we are being who we're supposed to be and claiming who we're supposed to be. They want something different. The world is sick and tired of fake Christians, and I think this has done more damage to Christianity than anything else. Uh, we just need to be authentic. What advice do you have for the listener that says, Pastor Murphy, what you're speaking about, you're speaking of me, and I've been hypocritical in my workplace, in my place of schooling, and I realize I need to change. How do I rebuild that reputation? How do I go the correct direction? Well, the first thing I would do is to try to settle it with God that you've actually uh, violated his principles. You've been... Um, um, besmirched his name and his character and to misrepresented the, the facts about Christianity. The second thing I would do is that I would go to my friends who I know that I profess to be a believer and I've been engaged in different activities that they clearly know to be wrong. I would um, humbly um, apologize, uh, tell them I, I was a hypocrite, I was wrong, I was e what I was doing was evil. And I am under tremendous conviction. I've gotten right with God. I want to get right with you guys. And I ask you for your forgiveness and your pardon for not living up my Christian life before you. Um, so my, my, my life from today onward, basically, is going to be as uh, a strong a Christian as I can be. I'm not perfect, and I will never be perfect. But my goal in life is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you were to be apologetic and sincere about that, and then follow that up by the right kind of living, 
uh, people can get over the hang-up that you were hypocritical in, in what you were doing, and they, they, they would actually respect you for the fact that you were so bold and um, confident in, in coming forward and asking an apology and, and, and determining now to, to live out the, God, the, the life of faith before those people. They'll forgive you. And I imagine that humbling yourself and making that kind of apology is, would be a great motivator to not go back down that path again. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one thing, uh, Nathan, that I don't like people to say, I'm sorry. Mm. What does sorry mean, basically? Mm. But when you have to tell somebody, I'm, uh, you know, forgive me for lying, forgive me for lying against you, or whatever it is, that that is different than just saying you're sorry. Because you don't want to come back the second time and say, I, I, I forgive for lying, I forgive for lying, after what it really gets to you. So that's where I think it's important to really confess. And, you know, I, I misrepresented Christian faith, whatever it is. Let it be very, very clear what you're saying. Not, you know, what does sorry mean, quite frankly? Uh, let them know that you were wrong, how, how you're living, how you're behaving, how you're acting, how you're talking, things you're listening to, places you're going, activities, etc., etc. And you want to come clean with them and come clean with God. I think people respect that, to be honest with you. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you hear teaching and answering the questions is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church on Roan Henry Street here in Antigua. If you are looking for a Bible-preaching church and you are not a member or attending a Bible-preaching church, you're in a phase of transition phase, we would love for you to visit Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. Again, we're in Gambles Terrace on Rowan Henry Street. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school starts at 9 o'clock, and Sunday morning worship service starts at 10 a.m. And then on Sunday evenings, we're rotating uh, different training courses depending on which Sunday of the month it is. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 741. It is a live interactive program. There's a number of ways that you can interact with us. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 782 yeah, I wanted to use an illustration, Nathan, if it may, with the same situation. Uh, one of the big mistakes I made in life, um, this is my first date, the first person I was dating, and we went to a function. I can't remember. I think it was a Christmas function. And on my way back, uh, we just decided to stop and talk. But it was the wrong place to stop and talk, to be very honest with you. And while we were stopping and talk, of all of all times, it was probably about 9.30. Uh, it was in a, we were coming to a track, and we stopped to talk in the track. And guess what? One of the old men that I knew that come down the village, of all times, he passed through there, and we were stopping talking. Man, my conscience bothered me for a week. And I had to, I went I went and sought him where he was living. And I went to his home and I said, listen, I want to apologize to you because I told him we, we did, weren't doing anything. He obviously weren't doing anything. But I said it was the wrong time, the wrong place to stop and to talk, especially the time. It was about 
And I was so apologetic. I said, listen, man, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, uh, you know, I, I hope I haven't ruined my testimony. I hope I haven't offended you in that regard. Now, he kind of brushed it off. But to be very honest with you, I was under so much conviction that entire week. I said, my, of all the times this guy would pass, it is when we're just talking. But it was the wrong time, the wrong place, and it should not have happened. And I went, and um, for what it is worth, I had to clear my conscience with him to tell him, you know, you should not have been talking here, should not be a place we sat. We, we were talking, we went, we were standing, and stuff like that. And I, I said it was so, so sorry, and uh, hope I didn't ruin my testimony. I've seen him many, many times after that. He's dead now, but he never came to me afterwards and told me anything. But it always bothered me. What impact? did that have on him it still bothered me because I don't even know if he ever got saved mm. but it, just something like that um, but I thought it was worthy of at least going to him and telling him you know this was not the place I should have been standing up talking etc etc so uh, we make mistakes yeah. uh, the thing is to, to do whatever you can to, to clear it as much as possible and leave the rest with God but if your conscience bothers you Nathan God is greater than your conscience. You've got to clear things up once your conscience begins to bother you in that, those kind of areas. What if your conscience is completely miscalibrated? Uh, you're just hyper hypersensitive. Well, that is very possible, too, um, especially coming out on certain type of backgrounds, depending on how, um, what kind of family background you come from, what kind of churches. Uh, if you came up from a, a kind of legalistic church where everything is, is, is basically you don't do this, you don't do that, go to home, you can't do this, you do that. You can have an extremely sensitive conscience. I don't know how to tell you how to respond to that. Or I would say to, um, the, the best way to, to do that is to let the Word of God guide your conscience. Uh, your, your conscience should not be more sensitive than what the Word of God is. So if there's something that is bothering you, search the Scriptures to see if there's something in the Scriptures that is against what you're doing and there's something that's condemnatory in that regard. But you can be oversensitive. But the problem today, I don't think, is oversensitivity, Nathan, is that yeah. people have lost uh, sensitivity because they've been so much engaged in, in sin for such a long time. Their conscience is at sleep and it's now in slumber. And pretty much that's why I think, uh, for example, I think politicians, you can't be a politician for 10 or 15 years or 20 years uh, without becoming a tin man, what I call a tin man, that your conscience no longer bothers you. That's why you can have, t take the American politicians, for example. Uh, I, I've been trying to go to my mind, how can you have a good conscience, um, c create legislation that a baby just before it's born can be killed? If he's a second born afterwards, he's still a human being. You can't kill him. I can't figure out how anybody with a conscience could actually think it could be right to just murder a child just before birth and it's not a person you're destroying. But how do politicians get there? Yeah. It, it, they get there because over the years they've been doing, involved in all kinds of corruption and evil to the point where they no longer do know what is right and wrong. It's only what is popular and what brings them votes. But the conscience pretty much is dead. I think that is substantially where we are when it comes to area of politics, whether it be Caribbean or global. And that's why we're seeing the kind of things that are being legislated. And you can't believe it was possible in your lifetime to see things like this happening. But I think the conscience is dead when it comes to the politicians in that regard, especially if being a for a number of years, I think you become a tin person with no heart any longer. 
Here's a question that has come in, very practical one. It says, Pastor, I am a young man aspiring to pastoral ministry, and I sometimes find trouble, have trouble finding good biblical books that are not Calvinistic. Can Dr. Murphy help by recommending some non-Calvinistic authors? I would suggest you that's one of the great difficulties that you're going to find uh, where out of whatever school you're going to today. Calvinism has won the day in terms of not only the reform churches, but now it is pretty much taken over uh, the Baptist movement. So there are a lot of people who are now Reformed Baptists. So it's very difficult to find uh, um, books that are not um, Calvinistic in leaning. I don't think you can find a, a book on uh, systematic theology. There's only one exception I can think about. But if you look at Bearcroft or you look at even Martin Lloyd-Jones or Erickson or Hodge or Gruden or Rary or uh, now uh, Elmer Tongs or Geisler or Cameron or even um, Evans, all of them are Calvinistic. The only systematic theology book that I find that is non-Calvinistic is the one by uh, Thiessen, Systematic Theology. That's one that I used when it was at uh, Bob Jones. Uh, Henry Thiessen, that's the only one I find that is non-Calvinistic. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they're not Calvinistic um, uh, nuances within the book. But he is not hyper-Calvinist, and he takes a reasonable position about redemption and um, uh, predestination based on foreknowledge. So I think Thiessen, uh, Henry Thiessen is probably the best systematic theology book you can find if you're looking for a non-Calvinistic book. But generally speaking, all the others that I've mentioned, the Hodge brothers, um, 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 Brekhoff, Evans, uh, Cameron, uh, Gruden, which is the standard book right now in in in, in, in uh, Rary, all of them are, are Calvinistic, so it's very difficult. I don't think the answer, though, is to try to avoid uh, these systematic theology because I have all of them basically, and they're very very useful. Um, but I find that there's certain areas that you just need to be very careful and very watchful. The biggest problem that and it can't be solved, um, it's never been solved, will never be solved, is the where do you draw the line between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? We know that human beings are responsible to make a choice. We know that God is the one who's the first mover when it comes to salvation. So where the two of these lines meet is the great difficulty. Uh, but I think you need to, to, to develop your own convictions on certain matters. For me, I have settled the matter very quite easily, that God in his sovereignty has uh, decreed that he will deal with man on the basis of free choice, that man remains a moral creature and has to make a choice. And God's sovereignty, therefore, allows man to make that choice. He's still sovereign because he didn't have to make that sovereign choice to to give man freedom, but he has. That works for me because it means that I'm responsible for not trusting Christ or trusting Christ. And that gives me a sense of fairness that I wasn't born and I couldn't make a choice. So think about that for just a moment. The idea that your child was born and can't make a choice. He's going straight to hell because for any time he was born, he had no choice. To my mind, I can't conceive of how can God deal with a man and judge a man if he really had no legitimate choice. So it, that's where it balances with me, and um, I feel comfortable with it, and I hope other people would, would follow suit in that, in that regard. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.51. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Again, call and ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420. Maybe you're a little hesitant. Listen, this is a safe place. We're not here to argue with you. We are here to hear your concern, hear your question, and then Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 1454. I'll give that to you again. The WhatsApp and text number is different from the calling number. WhatsApp or text 268 782 1454. If you are listening to the rebroadcast of this episode on Saturday afternoon, or maybe you're listening to the podcast or watching the video after the fact on Facebook, thank you for taking time to listen to the podcast. And we, you can still send in your questions via WhatsApp or text message. And the next live episode that we do in the studio, Pastor Murphy will answer your question one more. Yeah, Go ahead. If, I, if I could suggest to the, uh, make a few suggestions to the gentleman who's um, studying for the ministry. Look, I, I would uh, recommend that you find an author that you think like, not that he thinks like you, because he's far more brilliant than you are. But that's my recommendation to anybody going to the ministry, uh, whether it be Chuck um, Swindoll, whether it be John MacArthur, whether it be Piper. Uh, rather be Tony Evans. Um, for me, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones is the is the premier person that I um, I study more than anybody uh, any other author. I have MacArthur. I do do study him as well. But I also got William Barclay is another very good set of good set of commentaries. But and the uh, standard set of commentaries I would recommend is Jason Fawcett and Brown. You can get the three volume set that covers the entire Old Te- uh, Old and New Testament. And I think for the size of the uh, these commentaries, if you're looking for a, a beginner set, I don't think you can get a better set than that. I think the material is solid, um, it is scholarly, but yet it is very practical and very homiletical as well. I would recommend that commentary. A lot of people go to Matthew Henry. Um, I, I don't dispute that Matthew Henry has been a standard for, for many centuries, but I, I do feel that Fawcett and Brown, uh, three volumes, uh, are probably the best set to start off with as far as uh, for a pastor and a preacher who's studying for the ministry. Is that the Bible Knowledge? No, set? Bible okay. Knowledge is the one by Walverd and okay. the Dallas Theological Seminary. They've got a New Testament Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, New Testament and Old Testament. Again, that would be good because Dallas is a, a very, very good um, evangelical school, et cetera, et cetera. But I do like the the James and Foster and Brown, uh, okay. and I would recommend that. And many of these are probably available online? Well, yeah. Listen, I, I would say that people, if you're a, a young aspiring pastor, you don't need to invest in a lot of these books. There are a lot of websites now that make all these books available to you. Some of them you can actually download um, and so it saves you um, having to initially invest in, uh, unless like a hard copy, but generally speaking, these are available online that you can t- take, make access to. Another question that has come in, this actually was a carryover from last week. Good night, Pastor Murphy. When Japheth made the vow unto the Lord, 
Did he kill his daughter? Well, most people, if you're familiar with this this story, it actually starts in Judges chapter 11, where before uh, Jephthah went to uh, war against the Ammonites, um, he made a vow before God, and he told God, you know, if I had been successful and I can defeat the Ammonites, the first um, person or whatever comes out of my door that comes to meet me, uh, that first thing shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. And we are told in um, chapter 11, verse 31, that the first person to come out to meet him, quite frankly, was his daughter. Uh, if you look at um, look at 11.31 and 11.34. 11, Judges 11.31 says, Then it shall be, that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it for a burnt offering. And skipping down to 34. Yeah, verse 34. And Jephthah came to Mizeph unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances and she was his only child. Beside her, he had nothing, son nor daughter. Right. So that's the first person that met him after he was successful in the battle. And then, of course, um, the question is, what really happened uh, to her? Uh, there are several things that um, we need to put in order in place to really uh, get a proper interpretation of what really happened there. The first thing is that um, it is um, an abomination under the Old Testament law for uh, anybody to offer human sacrifice. This is strictly forbidden. Uh, if you look at Leviticus 18.21. Leviticus 18 and verse 21 says, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy Lord, for I am the Lord. Also, if you look at um, chapter 20, verse twenty, verse 2 to 5, Leviticus 20, verse 2 to, 20, 2 to 5. Again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he hath given his seed to Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do any ways hide their eyes from the man when he giveth of his seed to Molech, and kill him. Again, um, you see that is strictly forbidden um, in Leviticus 18.21, and then it's elaborated there in Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 2 to 5. Also, if you look at Deuteronomy 12.31, which is the, what, the repeat, repetition of the law under uh, Moses. Deuteronomy 12.31. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. So he condemns that, and then eighteen, same Deuteronomy eighteen ten. 
Deuteronomy 18.10 There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination or an observer of time or an enchanter or a witch. Okay, so it's very, very clear that under the Old, the Old Testament economy of law, this was forbidden, that you could not offer a child or any person and sacrifice that person and burn that person on the altar. Uh, as a Jew, Jephthah would have been aware of the law uh, uh, against human uh, sacrifice, and therefore it is uh, clear that uh, this would not be something that he would have done. Now, when he said he would offer the first thing that came to belong to the Lord and the burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering. Remember, a burnt offering means everything is consumed on the altar, basically. So the whole idea is that whatever is done, uh, it is completely devoted or fully given over to the Lord. And this is what we, I believe, that really happened in this particular case. For example, um, if you look at verse um, 38 of the text. Uh, remind me where I'm at. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Judges chapter 11. Judges 11 and verse 38. Uh -huh. Scroll down here. Judges eleven thirty-eight, And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. Yeah, so this seems to be that what really happened, that um, uh, a form of uh, sacrifice of a daughter, that she remained a perpetual virgin all her life, serving in the temple, just like Samuel did. And that's why when she's given two months to go and uh, weep and lament and, and mourn, she's not mourning over the fact that she's going to die. She's mourning over the fact that she's going to remain a virgin all of her life. She's not going to have a family. She's not going to have children. She's going to remain a perpetual virgin in the temple serving uh, the Lord. If you look also carefully at um, verse 39, read that as well. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man and it was custom in Israel. See that? And she knew no man. So what he, he has done um, cannot make the human sacrifice where he burns her up. But what he can do is that he can sacrifice her as though it's just a burnt sacrifice because she remains in the temple as a perpetual virgin. She's not able to marry. She's not able to bear children. And that's why it says in verse 39, uh, he did according to his vow which he had vowed, and she knew no man. So she was not allowed uh, to be a, a person who would have normal family, etc., etc. This seems to be the most reasonable and most logical explanation of um, this woman being devoted perpetually within the temple, living as a virgin. And it's as though she, her whole life is given over to the Lord. Like a, a burnt offering is completely consumed. Every part belongs to the Lord. In, in her case, she's not able to have a normal life any longer, except being, it's like, as I said before, it's like Samuel who remains in the temple from a boy given over to us to serve the Lord. That, to my mind, uh, seemed to be the, the best interpretation as opposed to a actual offering sacrifice. There's one other thing. If you look at Judges 10.16. Judges 10.16 says, And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Yeah. Notice that at this time, uh, it's a time when Israel has moved away from idolatry. 
They've taken away all the idolatry which would have been part of the worship of Moloch. We'll be offering children to the Lord, I mean, to, to the God Moloch. But notice that at the time uh, that this particular incident happened, Israel has now turned away from idolatry, is now returned to the Lord. So it is very, very clear that they're no longer under the spell of idolatry. They've returned to the Lord. And it's very unlikely that now having returned to the Lord, that he will now turn around and practice the same evil that the, the pagans did in sacrificing their children uh, to the fire that God condemns. That seemed to be... The other thing that I think is another good example of this, uh, Nathan, is if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 37 with Anna. Luke two thirty-seven. She actually came to my mind. We were just uh, reading that the uh, other okay, day. Okay, okay. Uh, when you were talking about serving in the temple. Luke two thirty-seven says, And she was a widow... Of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayer night and day. Yeah, so she here's a woman who lost her husband and is now virtually put herself on the altar completely to remain in the temple, serving God day and night with prayers and fasting, etc. This is the same type of thing, uh, I believe, that happened with uh, Jephthah, uh, where he's unable to sacrifice his daughter, uh, literally, but he could put her in the temple, and she would serve in the temple all her life. I believe that's the best interpretation. I cannot conceive of God abominating pagans offering their children on an altar of fire, and then himself turning around and uh, actually accepting that kind of a, a vow. Uh, so I think that's what... It, the other thing is that, remember the Bible says there's such a thing as the living sacrifice. Of course, we got that in the New Testament, chapter 12 of Romans. I, pres- I, I beseech you therefore by the mercy by the, by the, present your bodies a living sacrifice. She is more of a living sacrifice in the, in the temple than actually going through the burnt process. I don't want to complicate things, but a sure. question that came to my mind, so I'm sure there are others that have the same question. Mm-hmm. So Jephthah, he's the father, but he, as a result of his vow, commits his daughter to a life of not having a family, not having any normal uh, relations yeah. within marriage and all. Is that a model we should follow? Is that the role of a parent to be able to call a child to a particular career for the rest of, or not a career, but you know, yeah. make that decision for them? No, I think I honestly think it was a rash vow. Okay, but remember in the book of Proverbs, uh, we're told that if you make a vow before the Lord, you keep your vow. To be honest with you, but I think that was a vow that, um, in my judgment, you make a rash vow, you should be able to revoke it. But he followed through with it. And under the Old Testament economy, Old Testament law, even even the New Testament, by the way, uh, we're still under the law, system of law. Uh, in Rome, sorry, in Corinthians chapter 7, there were men who felt that their daughters should remain to the flower of the age and to want to remain as a virgin. They had control over that. It's almost like what goes off in the Eastern that kind of a culture. Uh, it took a while before Christianity was able to bring to the point where everybody is seen equal before God and uh, can make choices. That's why it took a while before we came to the, the idea of people are, are equal, people have equal dignity, etc., etc. Uh, and I think eventually the, the Christian faith and that, that pervasive concept of the value of a human being eventually won the day. And that's why I said the Bible is not a revolutionary textbook for us to rise up and take up arms and destroy the government, etc. It changes 
but it changes individual lives, who goes into government and changes government and changes society. It's not a book to be uh, used for violence. Uh, I think that it's very, very... And because of that, by the way, that's why the revolutionaries are always condemning Christianity, why, we, why they didn't push up arms to, for, uh, for example, the slaves to rise up and say, that's not the purpose of Christianity. It's not only the slave that need to be saved. The, the, the master as well, he's just as blind as the slave was. He need to be saved as well. So it's not just about one group. It's about all humanity, irrespective of, because we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners before God. We're all in darkness, etc., etc. Uh, we're all selfish. We're all mean. We're all corrupt. Uh, so it is not just, and that's where people need to understand what the gospel is all about. Christianity is about changing the individual on the inside who begins to transform society as a result of his influence. It's not about taking up arms and guns and, and ammunition and, and, and killing people. That's not the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mission of love and compassion, irrespective of who the person is, uh, irrespective of the race, color, creed, whatever it is, basically. That's what people need to understand about Christianity. It changes by changing the individual who transforms society. It doesn't attack society directly. It brings about transformation in individuals' lives. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lifehouse. And if you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. While we await your question, we are going to go back to a topic that Pastor started, well, it's been over a month ago, on the topic of biblical separation. Pastor, for those who... We're not lit, tuned in to the first few episodes on this topic. Uh, can you give us a little reminder of why we're talking about biblical separation? What is it? Well, we're talking about it because it's one of the great doctrines of the Bible, uh, not only in the New Testament but also in the Old Testament, that God has designed his people to be a very special, peculiar people who is supposed to be separate from the world. Uh, under the Old Testament, that was the nation of Israel. Under the New Testament, it's the church. But the same principle is the same, that he calls out a nation in the Old Testament. He calls out now a group called the church uh, to be distinct and to be a witness unto the testimony. And he gives them very clear uh, principles that they're supposed to live a life of holiness and separation. And that's what the word holiness means. The whole idea is that you are separated from Onto, and that is the principle that runs not only in the Old Testament in the New Testament. The Christian that's expected to be distinct, living separate lives. We talked about uh, moral separation, and uh, we emphasized that there are two aspects to moral separation: that we separate ourselves from sin, and we separate ourselves from the world. And we drew very clear lines: uh, what sin is, and how we ought to separate from a sinful lifestyle. But not only that, the world. And it doesn't mean the the material cosmic world. It is talking about the spirit of the age, the times in which we live, the the value system, the the thinking, the ideology, the mindset that governs the world. Uh, Christians should stay away from that kind of a mindset. And Paul says that 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 mindset of the world, that that thinking, that philosophy, is governed by three things: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. One has to do with our uh, our sinful. 
desires to, to meet our physical needs. One has to do with our aesthetic desires, the things that we see that attract uh, our eyes. And of course, the other one has to do with our ambition, um, the pride of life, wanting to be significant, wanting to, uh, to, to um, basically uh, stand out and be considered somebody. And that's as a result of pride. Uh, that is what we dealt with uh, before in terms of sin, and we dealt with the whole question of um, the world, and uh, we should not be enamored with the world. Uh, James said, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And our Lord said that you know, if the world hate me, he's going to hate you as well. So we should expect that. So that's what we dealt with, first of all, with moral separation, which had to do separation from sin, a separation from worldliness. I know when we started this topic, you referenced there was a personal separation. What is? What do you mean by that? Can you expound on it some? Well, but the second thing, uh, form of separation, is personal separation, which has to do with uh, individual Christians separating from other professed believers who are living lives contrary to the biblical norms and standards that the Bible endorses. And uh, we are uh, told in Scripture that we should separate from certain type of people who profess to be Christians. For example, Nathan, in Second Thessalonians 3.6, uh, you have a good reference there, Second Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Right. Uh, notice that you withdraw yourself from a person who walks disorderly. And the word that is used there uh, in the Greek language is um, a is a negative part of it, and taktos, which is the other part of the word. But it means um, to put in order or arrange. Uh, it's a military term, so it denotes a person who who who's out of rank, who's out of place, who's in discipline, and who behaves disorderly and not follow the strictures of Scripture and the traditions that have been handed down to the church through the apostles. Uh, apostles. If a person is walking in a disorderly way and a disorderly life, the Bible says you withdraw yourself from that kind of a person. Um, also, Second Thessalonians 3.14 is another reference. Second Thessalonians 3.14 says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Again, you've got clear instructions from Scripture. You've got somebody who claims to be a believer who does not obey the uh, commands or the words that the Apostle Paul has given, who are living disobedient uh, lives, would not yield to Scripture. Paul says you need to dissociate yourself from have no fellowship with that person. Uh, don't hang around with them, quite frankly, because they are a person who is strictly disobedient to Scripture. So you've got a person walking disorderly, certain standards that the Bible expects. He's not walking in an orderly way in, in the rank with the others. You've got somebody who is deliberately violating the commands of Scripture. Uh, in a case like that, the Bible said that you don't associate with that kind of a person. So we have to separate from those type of persons who disregard Scripture and who disregard the norms and the standards that the Bible has set for the church. Uh, yes. That verse there, Second uh, Thessalonians 3.14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. That sounds almost like some cults and some modern religion. So how do I know that what the Apostle Paul is saying is legit or the author is saying is legit, whereas 
what is in modern, how do I know whether it's re- legit or not? Well, it's legitimate if the person that you're dealing with is not willing to listen to Scripture. You you follow what Paul is saying here. You don't uh, associate with the person. You've got a person who is living a, a life that is uh, contrary to the norms of Christianity. For example, um, you... you, you you gotta you gotta decide what you think is the norm of scripture for certain. For example, you take even dress. Mm-hmm. There's something called modesty. I mean, quite frankly, there's something called modesty. When you have a person that comes into church and uh, their neckline is half the bobs out, uh, they have no sleeves. They have on the tightest type of uh, thing, and uh, it's all up next to their, their buttocks. You can almost, they can't even sit down. That, to my mind, is a violation of the norm of modesty. Uh, something has to be done if a person is a member of a church who wants to live that, uh, come into the church that kind of way. Now, an unsafe person can come in. You have no control over the unsafe person. Expect you to say, listen, next time you come, we would prefer you wear something more decent. But the church has no no, 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 no control over its non-members. But when it comes to the members of the church who are most dressed like a prostitute, uh, the church has a right to enforce some kind of discipline in, the, in, in that regard. You just can't let people come in. And you, not even the government allows you to come in at the immigration the way yeah. you want to. Even the banks, by the way, you can't go into the bank any way they want to. So when it comes to church members, there's nothing wrong in having standards for those type of people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And everybody should, should want modesty. You shouldn't want that when a person comes into the church, you're so distracted, you can't even listen to the sermon, you can't even, uh, you, you, you know, you're, you're drawn to this person, uh, figure or body or whatever it is, and uh, it creates lust within people who are sitting either in the front or the back. You've got to deal with, that. that's an example of a person walking disorderly. Um, in terms of uh, a biblical teaching, um, some particular doctrine that the, the, the Bible is very clear about, that um, a person is not willing to follow that biblical doctrine. Like they take the the virgin birth, you take the 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 resurrection of Christ, you take the incarnation. Um, those are issues that you don't dilly-dally on those major fundamental doctrines. What a person... And by the way, one of the things I'll show you as we go through the deal with the, the ecclesiastical separation, that a lot of these established churches no longer believe in a virgin birth, no longer believe in the resurrection, no longer believe in the atonement. Uh, when you're in a church like that that doesn't believe that kind of a doctrine, you don't have to come out of that church. You don't remain in that church any longer because they're completely apostatized. But all the major denominations including the Anglican, the Episcopalian, the Lutheran, all of these major denominations have now completely gone almost apostate. And it uh, called for us now to tell the people need to leave those churches and come into the remnant church that takes a stand on biblical truth. Brother Williams, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good Good evening, sir. And how are you? I am doing well. How are you doing? Having a bad thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, but let me, let me tell you, let me ask you a question. Uh, why do you mean Christ- of Christmas? Because I haven't passed kind of saying about anybody that worshiping Christmas and it's false or whatever, especially genogening, or baptism is false, and all that... That worshiping Christmas is false. I mean, we know that Christ didn't born on 25th of yeah. December, but the best part, 
reborn and you have enough to celebrate. Yeah. Well, look, um, all I can say to you is this, right? I don't have anybody who worship Christmas. I don't have any Christian that worship Christmas, period. What I know that people who uh, observe uh, the Christmas season is that they honor the fact that Christ was born and he came to redeem humankind, and that's what it is for Christmas, people who are believers. So I can't speak about uh, people who are not Christians and what they're thinking about, but I have never in my entire life worshipped Christmas. Uh, I've always res- um, treated the day as a day to celebrate his coming to redeem humankind. And as I said this on the radio before, I'll say it again. Uh, we don't really do it here in Antigua, the Baptist Church I pastor, uh, but in Barbados, the church I grace, Baptist Church. It's an important day for those churches because it's the one of the two days that people in Barbados go to church. I don't care if you're a heathen. I don't care who you are. Two days you'll go to church in Barbados, Christmas and Easter. And the church has always used those opportunities to preach the glad tidings and explain to those people about the coming of Christ, what it means, his, 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 uh, his incarnation uh, to redeem humankind. So it's an opportunity to declare the gospel, and I see absolutely nothing wrong uh, with that. So I don't have a problem with it. Those whose conscience smites them on the matter, it's a personal matter. If a person feels that way, um, they have a right not to observe it. But you have no right to tell any other Christian uh, who has no compunction of conscience, who's conscious at ease, who understands what the message is all about, the incarnation of our Lord coming into this world, and they feel it's a way of respecting that and, and drawing attention to it and preaching the gospel to others. I don't see why that should be a problem for others. The problem is this. Everybody wants to be very legalistic these days. And we got to understand there's such a thing as, as Christian freedom. Uh, even the Apostle Paul, great Apostle Paul, said, let every man be fully persuaded in his mind what day he worships on, about the, the feast days and all these kind of things. There are people today who want to impose all these things on the church. And we have been given tremendous freedom on these. All of these things are just shadows and types of the Old Testament, etc., etc. But now today you've got people who want to reinforce them. I am saddened to, to even find that there are certain um, um, evangelical churches who don't want to go back to the Feast of Israel and all this kind of nonsense that the Bible is so clear about. How do we get to this state again? I just don't understand. It's because we've gotten away from the biblical truth of the liberty and freedom that we have in Christ and that the shadow of these things, we now got the substance. Let's hold to the substance, not the shadows. I don't know but, if that helps. Go ahead, go ahead. But, but what I mean, I mean... There is so much people that need to get saved, so people that are dying and going to hell. Uh-huh. That a preacher would get on the internet and start to plan with another yeah. church by yeah. that always in Christmas. And there is so much things that's worth it there, worth repent and be baptized yeah. and get yeah. saved yeah. yeah. and studying about a church that always in Christmas. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what I'm stand for. You know, Jenny, I know I stand for. Yeah. Well, look, you know what happened is that these try these people are always looking for something that is unique. Some they specialize in a particular area, and that is what kind of uh, cuts them above everybody else. And this becomes the main part of their religion. It's like the Sabbath. Everything is about the Sabbath, right? Uh, there's the Yahweh group. Everything is the Feast of Israel. 
going back to the feast of Israel, and now you know. So it, it's like this now becomes the, the 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 primary thing that distinguishes them, and they're like the remnant church of all time. Listen, God has always had His remnant church. The church has never been uh, without a witness, and God has always selected. So all through the centuries, all through the centuries, uh, I can I, I can't think of, of any great. Evangelist, any great um, preacher that God has used, who has ne- who has actually come out and say, you know, that Christmas is of the devil, or that you shouldn't observe what this kind of thing. All of them have used it as an opportunity to preach the on the incarnation of Christ and His coming to redeem humankind. Now today, uh, people are looking at nitty gritty things, and I think they're just they're just distorting the truth and. Um, trying to create something that's unique, that's not really unique. And let's just preach Christ. Let's get Amen. back to the gospel. Let's not let these things sidetrack us and distort our thinking. Christ and Christ is what we want to know about. And we're just not um, overwhelmed with these, these new, uh, newfangled ideas that people are bringing today to try to make them somehow, somehow unique. They're not unique. Yeah, one, one last thing about Sure. I, I would continue from guy by the market, by the bayside. And uh-huh. One guy come up and tell me that the Bible said all man born in sin is one mother conceivable. Okay? Uh-huh. And he said that if you're born in sin and you die in sin, you're going to hell. Uh-huh. When a baby born and die, where, where the baby go is? Well, well, the only example we got that I think is a very good example of what happens. You remember when uh, David had committed sin with Bathsheba and David uh, had a, a child and the child died? Remember David spent time praying and fasting, asking God to uh, withhold his hand of judgment, spare the child's life, and God said, you know what, I'm not going to spare the child's life. You remember when David, what David said? David said that when he died, he would go to be with his child. I think there's a clear indication that children who die uh, before the age of accountability that the grace of God and the grace of Christ covers that. Uh, it's, un- it, it, it's just not conceivable that um, a person who um, doesn't know right from wrong can be held accountable uh, for the sin nature. So we believe that those people, babies who die, uh, are protected under the grace of God and that the, 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 the death of Christ covers those persons who die outside of himself who are have not reached the age of accountability. There's no, I mean, this is just a, a, a belief. Uh, there's no clear teaching on the matter, but the fact that David is saying that his son, who was conceived in, in morality, uh, had died that he would go to be with his son when he died and we know that there's nobody that would question David was going to be with the Lord and was going to be in, in the place of consolation the place of um, um, of, 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 um, of where grace would be so if he's there with his son clearly that baby would also be under the same grace that David was under so that, that to my mind is a biblical illustration that would help us to grasp what happens to babies um, who die 
before the age of accountability. What I would say to those men that you're talking about is to make sure that they get their sins forgiven and their sins pardoned. And don't worry about the innocent child who hasn't come to that age of accountability. Let them understand that they're responsible for themselves and they know right from wrong. And if they're not living right from wrong, God's going to judge them. And if they don't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be going to a place called hell and not heaven. Correct, correct, correct. Preach the word, brother. Preach the word. Okay, God bless you. Thank you very much for the call. Thank you for your interaction on the program, Brother Williams. And in case you're interested in that particular passage, it's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, where David says those words that Pastor Murphy quoted. If you have a question, the phone line is open and available. You can call and ask it. Call 1-268-462-7420. You say, Brother Nathan, you said that way too fast. I was just unlocking my phone. Let me give it to you again. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. If you don't want to speak live on the air, that is not a problem at all. There are other ways that you can interact with us. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed and then right there on your device, you can write in the comment section under the video your concerns, your questions, and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner live on the air. Yeah, Nathan, I just wanted to give you the context of the two passages we read, 2 Thessalonians 3 6 and 3.14. If you look at um, 3.10, you see the context of what is really going on in that passage. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Yeah. What has happened in the passage that we're talking about, walking disorderly, is that it it was very, very clear at this particular time in the uh, Thessalonian church that there were some people who thought the Lord's coming was very near. Because the Lord's coming is very near, they decided, you know, I quit my job. I don't need to work. So what was happening is that they became idle, they became negligent, they became free loafers, and they became people who were sponging off the church. Uh, and the Apostle Paul is correcting that. They're walking disorderly because they need to take care of their family. They must not use the Lord's return as a basis to uh, abandon work, and then the church has to take care of them and their family. This is what Paul is talking about in that particular passage, where he says walking disorderly. Uh, a husband, a man is responsible for his family. He should work to provide for his family. He should not use religion uh, to neglect work and to live off and, and uh, be a free law for the church. So that is what one thing that Paul talks about in that particular passage. And, in, yes, In relation to that verse or that illustration you gave there, I have heard individuals say, the Lord is going to return within my lifetime, 
And so I don't need to save for retirement or save for, you know, care later in life. And I also need to spend whatever money the Lord has given me so that it's not left here on this earth after the rapture happens and I'm taken. How would you answer that? Is that a biblical perspective? Well, I would say that foresight uh, and planning for the future is one of the basic principles of Scripture. Uh, You read the book of Proverbs, it warns about that kind of thing. If you have the means to, to, to look into the future and take care of your family, you should do that as a person. You should not use the idea that the Lord is returning, therefore, well, you know, the Lord is returning, so I'll borrow a million dollars and spend it, because by the time the Lord comes back, I, I, I'll be gone. <laughs> I mean, that is completely dishonest uh, mm-hmm. as far as that is concerned. That should not be the thinking, that should not be the mindset. We are to use judgment, and we should be preparing um, for the future, but it's also important that we, we, we balance that, because um, we can be too uh, caring, yeah. and we, quite frankly, um, use our means uh, that can be used other ways to help the Lord's work, and we're so focused on tomorrow that we are pretty much handicapped being able to work do anything today. So there has to be a balance in that regard. We, we look after our, f- our future, but we also take care of the Lord's work and the Lord's ministry. We must maintain that balance. The other thing, uh, another verse that I want to look at was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Corinthians five eleven says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. Again, it's very, very clear that you're talking about a professed believer who is guilty of these things that Paul mentions here. He's a fornicator, he's an idolater, he's a drunkard, he's an extortioner, he's a crook, basically, and he has an inordinate greed. That's what the word extortion means. He's exacting more from others than he should be charging. Uh, Paul says, uh, that type of person, you don't associate with that person, you withdraw from that person, you don't um, eat with that person, quite frankly. I mean, these are very, very, very clear. Um, I mean, and, and these are very, very common, these are common sins as well. I mean, fornication, I mean, people know about that. Idolatry, we know when a person is idolatrous when, quite frankly, the whatever object there um, means the most to them, it might be their car, it might be their home, they neglect everything. Everything is about their car, everything about their home, whatever it is. It's an idol, quite frankly. Uh, it might be their job. Drunkardness mm-hmm. is another thing that the Bible talks about. Extortion talk about there, etc. So, um, again, this is called personal separation. We have a responsibility before God that when believers are engaged in these kinds of unwholesome behavior and conduct and, and sinful actions, that we don't facilitate it and we don't normalize it that we should be strong enough as believers to say to that person, look, you're a professed believer, uh, you're supposed to be a brother in Christ, but I can't associate with you while you're engaged in these forms of activity that God strictly tells me I must not associate with a person who's engaged in this kind of activity. So you should go to them and have that discussion before you separate from them? I would do that, for sure, because sometimes, uh, and they need to be told that sometimes, by the way, uh, 
uh, and we need to confront people on these type of things. You know, if you know something is there, and a lot of people, by the way, know things are going on, and they just let it go on and go on and mm-hmm. go on and go on, and they act as though there's nothing there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And other believers themselves could be engaged in facilitating indirectly because they're not aware of what's going on in that person's life. But if you're aware of it as a Christian, and using this biblical mandate that we're given, uh, you go to them and say, "Listen, um, I can't fellowship with you. I can't associate with you." I'm taking the Bible very seriously, and this is what God says. I think a person respects that. They might be disappointed at first, but if you take a stand, and your stand is biblical, that person, if they're genuine a believer, will come around to the point where they respect the fact that you're willing to take a strong stand and a judgment on this matter and not tolerate what you know, and I know to be wrong, just to remain a friend or to be socially engaged with that person. Pastor, we have Codrington on the line. Codrington, please go ahead quickly with your question. Thank you for calling. Yeah, um, I'm very brief on um, quick and so, you know. Sure. I have this question here, this is so now. Um, you know that I'm, I'm a child of um, Mary, um, Mary Mother, right? So um, I'm going to ask this question. When Jesus Christ come into the world, right, and he said that he talked to the people and them, so what kind of people he come and talk to and say that all his own people reject him? I just want you to give me um, an answer, and then when you finish, give me your answer. I would like to answer some more about it. So, Well, uh, I would say to you, um, that it's a tragedy that you're a child of Mary. I thought you were going to tell me you're a child of Christ or a child of God, okay? The only people getting to heaven are those who are children of God, not children of Mary. So that's the first thing i like to say to you. And I say in the kindest way. I don't want you to feel as though I'm trying to target you all the time. But if your trust is in Mary, you are going to be in for the greatest shock of your life if you pass away and you go into eternity. Make sure that you have Christ and Christ alone. Mary will not be able to help you in your moment of death. I guarantee that. And uh, so I'm a little bit fearful for you keep saying you're a child of Mary. I want to hear you say a child of God, you're a child of Christ, not the child of Mary. Second thing is that, look, um, Christ, the Bible says, he came on his own and his own received and not. But as many as received and then gave he power to become the sons of God. The Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah. And the reason why they rejected Christ as the Messiah, because they were looking for a military Messiah who would deliver them from under the yoke and the bondage of the Roman Empire. They thought the Messiah would uh, be a conquering Messiah who would come and deliver the Jews and reestablish the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of, of Israel. That was not the initial plan. They missed the whole boat that is a twofold plan. The book of Isaiah chapter 53 said that when he come, he comes as a sheep to the slaughter, and he will die for the sins of the world. Isaiah chapter 53. He is coming again at the tribe of the Lion of Judah. Now, he's coming then to reign and to rule and to set up his kingdom. But the initial purpose of his coming is to deal with the whole sin question between God and man. So he came as a lamb first. He's coming back as a lion to rule. The Jews did not see those two aspects to his coming. 
They only saw the lion part of it, that he would come and he would destroy the Roman Empire and he would set up his kingdom. They did not understand that there's a bigger problem than just military um, dominance, and that is that man is under the tyranny of sin, and man needs to be delivered from the tyranny of sin. So the whole sin question had to be settled first. Then when he comes back, He's coming back to reign and set up his kingdom. So they rejected him as a Messiah because he's seen to be one of weakness. He's hanging on a Roman cross. The enemy has conquered him. And they're saying, you know, how could this one be the Messiah and dying such an ignominious death on the cross? But remember when he's on the cross, what he said? It is finished. Redemption is finished. Atonement is finished. The Sin problem is finished once forever. He has conquered human sin. He has conquered death. He's conquered the grave. That is where he first came, and that is where he came to redeem humankind and pay the price so that we can have uh, forgiveness and pardon, the atoning death. But this same one is coming again as the land of the tribe of Judah to set up his kingdom on planet Earth and to rule from Jerusalem over all the kingdoms of this world. That is where the Jews made the mistake of not understanding this twofold purpose of his coming as a lamb and then secondly as a lion. Okay, um, you can hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, what I want to say now, when he say that how he's come to his own people, right? Uh, yeah. I'm going to talk for a while. He come for the, um, the, the, the preachers in him who was preaching unto God and was believing to God at those times. Because when they were preaching unto God, they were God's people. Now God sent his son on this earth, you know. He come to them as how they were preaching to God. And they reject him because those persons and so before time now believe in God alone. So now when he come on earth now, I did want you to say that's how he come to his own because his own people was God people in those times because they knew God at those times. So he come into the world now and accept his own people is in him who was worshiping God at that time, you know. And they reject him. So he come to his own people, and his own people was worshiping God as their God before time, and now they didn't accept him to be a God, because he was taking away their people from the same God where they was worshiping us. So I expect you to say that word that his own people was God. Well, look, he came to the Jewish people because the Jews are the people, salvations of Jews, as he said in John chapter 4. So he did come to his people, Israel. But remember that Israel is the instrument of human redemption. God selected Israel as a nation, and that nation was not selected exclusively of herself uh, to be God's people alone. They were supposed to be a force that would lead other nations to the true and the living God. But Israel failed in their purpose. When Christ came as a Messiah, uh, they rejected him. Again, I said they rejected him because what their conception was of the coming Messiah was not the biblical presentation of the Messiah. They are looking for a deliverer from the Roman power. 
military power and the setting up of, of the kingdom, and Israel would rule uh, again. That's what they were looking for, but that's not what the Messiah was supposed to come to do in the first case. He was supposed to come to his people to redeem them from their sins and their rebellion against God. But again, they thought they were okay, had a very cocky attitude, very legalistic attitude. They thought because they were the children of Abraham, they were okay. Just that you think you because you're the ch- child of Mary, you're okay. But when he came, he made it very, very clear that the only right standing between uh, God and, and, and man is if they're rightly related to himself, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Pharisees rejected that because they thought as long as they had the law, they didn't need a Messiah to save them. They were okay. And pretty much the same thing we have today, the arrogance of people who don't think they need a Messiah, who think they're okay, etc., etc. But he was rejected by the Jews because they had a false concept of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And because the Jews rejected him, God has now grafted in the Gentiles into his plan, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, so that now we have what is called the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, where God is calling other people out of the world unto himself. He's not going to save. The world would not be saved. The world is damned. Nothing you can do to salvage planet Earth. Planet Earth has a, a destiny of fire and, and, and destruction. But what God is now doing is God is calling out of the world that has rejected him. A people unto himself called the church. That whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, irrespective of who you are, what color you are, you now come to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to become part of God's family. That is what the church is all about. And that's what he is now doing in planet, in planet Earth. His job in planet Earth is calling little people out of the world unto himself. And when that full, complete number of people are, are in the body, then he returns, raptures the church, and takes the church to be with him in glory. Then he comes back, judges his earth, set up his kingdom, and we rule with him uh, when his kingdom is set up. That's the biblical plan that God has, and that's what is being worked out today on planet earth. Thank you for calling. Thank you for your question, Codrington. Uh, Pastor, what does it mean to be a Christian? For the listener who says, I'm not a believer, but I'm intrigued by what I'm hearing. What do I need to do to become a Christian? Well, to become a Christian, uh, two things are fundamentally involved. First of all, there has to be a consciousness of one's sin and an understanding that the problem between man and God is the problem of sin. Our Lord said in uh, Isaiah chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's ear is not heavy that he cannot hear, nor his hands shortened that he cannot save. But your iniquities have separated between us and God. The problem with man is not mental. The problem with man is moral. Man is a rebel against God. He's disobedient against God's law. He knows right from wrong, but he's bent on living an autonomous, independent life. He doesn't want God telling him how to live, what to do with his life. He's a rebel at heart. That needs to be restored. The Bible calls that alienation, separation between God and man. Now, so that, that rebellion has to be dealt with. The way that God has dealt with this problem is that God has decided to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take this, the sin debt that man owes to God. The debt that we owe to God, we cannot pay. The, 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 the cost of it actually is to live in eternal hell forever. Christ has decided uh, to come and die in man's place to assume man's responsibility, to take man's sin upon himself. And the gospel is simply this. 
that when a person puts his faith and trust in Christ and what Christ did on the cross so that he can be forgiven and pardoned, and he's willing to repent of his sins and ask God pardon and forgiveness, that God takes that man's sin, pardons that man's sin, buries them in the deepest sea, he remembers them no more. But in addition to that, God now takes the righteousness that Christ has and imparts it to man, imputes it to man, and it goes to man to come. So that when God sees a person who's put their faith and trust in Christ, he sees you in Christ, clothed in Christ, so that God can now deal with you as a son and a daughter. Even though there's still that sinful nature within you, God can deal with you because you have the rights of Christ imputed to you as a person. That is called the doctrine of justification. That's what God has done for us. So that uh, God can maintain this relationship that was broken, but it can only be maintained and sustained because we are in Christ. Not in Mary, not in the church, in Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and now God deals with me and deals with us on the basis of his right. So salvation is basically repenting of our sins and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. That is the essence of what salvation is all about. It's an act of faith, and it is available to us basis on the basis of grace. It's a free gift that God offers to us, and we have to accept that gift or we can reject that gift. But whatever happens, he's going to hold you accountable for your response to Jesus Christ. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question, the phone line is now open and available. You can call 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Don't hesitate, though. We have just under 15 minutes left in this episode, so go ahead and get your question in. You can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and comment your question under the video feed when you click on the video feed link there on the Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. We are talking about personal separation, biblical separation, but specifically Pastor was talking about what is meant by (coughs) personal separation and separating from a proclaiming believer who uh, is not living a Christ-honoring life. And there was a whole list here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. Pastor, anything else you'd like to mention on that topic? No, I just think it's important, Nathan, that we understand that this is a doctrine that is taught in Scripture. Uh, it is not something that is, con- is frequently referred to today, and I don't think that people are appropriately responding to the lifestyle of people who claim to be Christians and are living such reckless lives that we give them the impression that they're okay and we associate with them on a, on a normal, normal level. That doesn't help them, and it doesn't help people in the world because they themselves see what is happening and when other Christians are so in cahoots with these type of people who live in this kind of a lifestyle they're also given the impression that the church doesn't have any standard and that this kind of lifestyle is right and proper we ought to take a stand on these matters and we ought to make uh, these people who are uh, claimed to be Christians and live in these kind of ways that the Bible says we should not we ought not to associate with them we ought to warn them and we ought to uh, separate from them. We ought to withdraw from them. Uh, and this should create in them a desire to want to re- be restored uh, to fellowship. 
is this, you mentioned it's a doctrine. Is it a doctrine we have to follow? Or is it a kind of a, you can live it, apply it one way and I'll apply it another way? Or it's pretty straight cut? Well, I think it's very straightforward. Paul makes it very clear. If any man, mark that man and withdraw yourself from that man. If that person doesn't obey the scripture, he's not living in according to the, the, the norms that we've set. Uh, the church job is to enforce the norms of scripture. And if that is being violated by another, and it's very, very specific. You know, if a, a person claims to be a brother, he's a fornicator, he's an idolater, he's a drunkard, he's an extortioner, um, he's covetous, he's a railer. The Bible says, withdraw yourself from that person, don't associate with that person. I mean, that is very, 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 very clear in Scripture. Now, modern psychology is a very opposite of, of biblical separation. And what has happened to the church, we are more governed by modern psychology than we are by biblical principles. And that's where the problem lies. The the two main um, entities or the two main philosophies that have pretty much destroyed Christianity is evolution and psychology, basically. And we've got to get back to biblical standards, biblical truth, and uh, not allow ourselves to be governed by these modern ideas coming from... Um, and by the way, all the modern psychological ideas came from men who are atheists and men who are contrary uh, to Scripture and men who hate God. And who, You can't give me one psychologist that has created any kind... Whether it be Freud, whether it be Watson, um, whether it be Rogers, none of these men are men who believe in God and men who believe uh, in, in Scripture. All of them that have uh, come up with these ideas are men of, who are atheistic, evolutionists, humanists, but yet their ideas have no uh, somehow infiltrated the church through the seminaries, through training, through psychology, etc., etc. And it's one of the grave problems we're faced with today. And when we call back people to this idea of separation, you find that people find it uh, offensive because that's not how we do things. That's not how we've been doing things. Well, we better get back to the biblical principles and we turn to these norms of the Bible if we're going to restore the church to what it's supposed to be. I was going to ask you what kinds of things would merit a believer being separated from, but I guess the answer to that is found in Scripture there with, uh, as I referenced, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yeah, because there's six or seven things Paul mentions there. I mean, if a man claims and he's this way, Paul says, you know, you're separate from him. So that settles it for us. And that's the thing about biblical Christianity, and I would say about the independent Baptist movement. We're not too concerned about what, I, I'm not too concerned about what other people think, what psychologists think, what sociologists sociologists think. What we are concerned about, what does the Bible say on these matters? And we're moving people back to an understanding of these biblical principles, and uh, these become the standards within the church, and the church begins to act out these things. Then people begin to understand what true Christianity is. As we wrap up this episode in the last seven minutes or so, are there any maybe practical dimensions or discussion along the lines of how this personal separation would take place? Well, I think that, um, in my judgment, the, the biggest problem today um, has to do with a lot of these things are not taught, Nathan. I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going on in other churches, et cetera, et cetera. But I be. I think that people listening to this program today would be very, very surprised. They probably never heard the pastor talk about these type of things. And I think because we've been negligent of the exposition of God's word and telling people what the Bible teaches on these matters, uh, we've got a very illiterate generation. 
and uh, the guy that now begins to call people back to the standard, to the norm, believe it or not, he is seen to be the the bad guy. He's seen to be the guy that is legalistic. He's seen to be the guy that um, is too dogmatic and uh, he's not loving, he's not caring, he's not tolerant enough, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that one of the practical things that needs to be done basically is to actually um, teach people these things and let people understand that these are not unusual uh, principles. These are norm principle, normal principles of Scripture, and that the church needs to reinstitute uh, these kind of principles so how we react, interact with each other. I don't know as we're going to have time to cover this in get do it justice, but what about ecclesiastical or doctrinal separation? Well, I think uh, this is the one I really want to get into because uh, not only do we need to separate from a brother. But there are times when we need to move out of a church, move out of a, a, a denomination, because that church, that denomination, have gone so far away from biblical truth and is now um, practicing. But, but this is the denomination that my auntie and my uncle and my great-grandma, they all grew up in. Yeah. Well, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're living under the command of the Word of God. So it doesn't matter. And by the way, uh, it is very obvious when you read the book of Revelations, uh, chapter 2 and 3, with these were the seven churches, that Christ said, I will remove your candlestick. In other words, it's very, very clear that if they did not respond to the word, the light would have gone to those churches. So they might still continue, but they don't carry any light alone because he's removed the candlestick. So it's a matter of being obedient to God's word and being obedient to Scripture. It doesn't matter. Your loyalty and my loyalty is not to a church. My loyalty and my first loyalty is Scripture and to God. If a church falls in line with, with, with God and Scripture, then, of course, you've got a level of loyalty there. But when that church moves away from its loyalty to the Bible and now begins to teach false doctrine, but not only false doctrine, now begin to offer, to do a morality that is so completely contrary to the Bible, it's now become the time when the believer is told to uh, leave those churches uh, come out of them, my people, quite frankly, is what, what, what we reach. And this is where I think today the problem lies, Nathan. All the major denominations have now apostatized, not only in terms of biblical doctrine, the, the primary doctrine of the Bible, like the virgin birth, the, the, uh, the resurrection of Christ, miracles, the idea of the atonement, uh, all the major denominations, for example, even creation, uh, we are now told that Adam and Eve was a myth, the, the Garden of Eden was a myth, the, 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 the Noah's um, Ark was a myth, Jonah was a myth. All the major denominations are now denying those biblical truths. But it does not take long after you start denying biblical truth that you now also start denying biblical morality. And that's what's mm -hmm. been happening. When you move away from biblical truth doctrine, you will find then that the morality of the church now begins to decline. And that's what's exactly happening in all the major denominations. And what staggers me is that the head of these denominations, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the statements that he makes about creation, the statements he makes about the resurrection, about uh, the virgin birth, he denies all of these things. But how can he be still be the head of the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church? How can churches allow a man like that to be the head? And this is where uh, there's a need now to leave those churches. They're completely gone. 
And uh, they only carry the name church. But all the major, uh, a lot of the bishops, a lot of the priests, a lot of the theological uh, teachers in the seminaries are completely apostatized. And, uh, and I don't know why people remain in those denominations. And that is where I think the battle really lies. And now what is happening, Nathan, they're not only denying these things, but that's why you now have uh, them ordaining homosexuals, ordaining lesbians. Uh, this is where you know have that they're now given permission to, uh, to marry uh, two men, uh, etc. This is what is happening to all the major denominations. They have now completely gone away from biblical Christianity, and they're now trying to bring and force the social agenda of the secular world into the church. So what you have is a church that denies the Bible, denies biblical morality, so why call it a church? Why not mm-hmm. just call it a social sorority or something where the people come together and sing a few songs, but the true worship of God and the true obedience to Scripture is gone. And that is why those people need to come out of those churches. You don't remain in those churches because you can't reform them. Remember that Martin Luther and all the reformers were men who did not want to destroy the Catholic Church. They thought they could reform the Catholic Church. You cannot reform the Catholic Church. You have to come out of the Catholic Church and eventually discover that. Remember the Puritans wanted to remain in the Anglican Church to reform the Anglican Church, but they reached a point where like, you can't reform the Anglican Church, so they had to leave the Anglican Church. Remember John Wesley, the Methodist, did not want to leave the, 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 uh, the Anglican Church. But again, they realized you can't reform it, so he came out and formed. But these are not men that decided that they wanted to destroy those denominations. But when they reached to the point where they no longer follow God's word, they no longer follow God's morals. The time has come for God's people to come out of that. And that's why the way people ask where you got these denominations. Denominations are often created as a result of coming out of these apostate churches. And the need today is for a big movement out of these apostate churches and become part of the true remnant church. In the last 30 seconds, what would you say to the listener that says, Pastor Murphy, my church doesn't really teach this doctrine, but they teach good stuff. They teach about treating others as, as I'd want to be treated and so on and so forth. What advice do you have? Nothing wrong in, in being taught to treat people equally and treat them right, but we also have to hold to the biblical doctrine of separation. If it is there, it's there for purpose. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.